0: La Convención de Cannabis de Nican de Illinois llega pronto a Chicago los días 4 y 5 de diciembre 2021. La ciudad de Chicago abrega 44 dispensarios de cannabis. Nican se complace de traer a algunos de los mejores en la industria junto en un solo lugar. No importa su nivel de experiencia, conocimiento, todos están invitados a asistir al evento, a explorar la sala de exposiciones y escuchar docenas de expertos de cannabis. Ya pronto llega Nikan a Chicago. Tenga su boleto hoy en nican.com diagonal 2021-Illinois. De nuevo, diagonal 2021-Illinois.
1: Hola, Joshua Smeiser de Leon here, founder and host of the Paseo Podcast. Thanks for listening to the show, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla. To the diaspora, if you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo Boricua and Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on SaveChicagoMedia.org. Okay, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. We have a packed episode for you today. First, we welcome Denise Ruiz and Cristina Gutierrez to the show. Uh, They are the founders of the Honeycomb Network, a holistic co-working and co-creating Collective Care Sanctuary centered and focused on the BIPOC community. We recorded this back in September, and it was a lot of fun, I got to say. And I know I kind of say that awkwardly, but um, so many emotions go through my head when it comes to recording in person. You know, We were in the pandemic, we were quarantining, uh, we've done and continue to do a lot of our interviews remotely. So it was really freaking cool uh, to be able to record in person um, and of all places to record it on site at the Honeycomb Network. Um, you can tell they put a lot of effort into their space, so it was really nice to, to record there. Uh, when we have our episode, uh, the video version of our episode drop on Monday, I think you'll really like the quality of it. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a different style uh, than you're probably used to since we launched our YouTube channel. So I'm um, looking forward to you listening to this episode, uh, the audio version uh but also like watching the video too. I think you'll be really impressed. And we got some pretty cool B-roll of their space. Um, but really they uh just do a lot of great community work there. Um so that, that's a big reason why I wanted to invite them on the show to learn more about their organization. Um and you know, we covered a lot of ground. Uh it's a pretty lengthy interview. Um, you know, we, we talked about things like knowing your worth, uh opening up their space during the pandemic. Uh, creating uh, spaces that are are, are for people to address their generational trauma and their personal healing. They also share a story of dealing with people in the neighborhood who don't really take too kindly to what they do and their mission, which has led to the repeated vandalization of their space. But I'll let Denise and Christina share more on that. Uh, After the interview, though, I will share how you can act to support them. Then we welcome returning guest, freelance journalist from Puerto Rico, uh, Carlos Berrios Polanco. He's gonna come on to discuss with us the controversial bill known as PC-1003 that recently became law in Puerto Rico. It's basically a law that takes care of La Junta and vulture capitalists and, you know, takes away from pensions, education, and public services that working people so deeply benefit from. So we invited on Carlos uh, to really help bring us up to speed and full transparency. I've been so checked out of news. I've been so busy with other things in my life and, you know, what a privilege to to be in that space, but uh, it comes with a great sadness that I haven't really been able to, to, to keep up to date on what's happening in Puerto Rico. And um, so uh, I reached out to Carlos last minute, uh, like yesterday and we just hopped on a quick call so he could help me fill in the gaps. Anyway, Uh, With that said, let's kick things off with our interview with uh, Denise and Cristina from the Honeycomb Network. We have two very special guests with us today. We have Cristina Gutierrez and Denise Ruiz. They are the co-founders of the Honeycomb Network, a holistic co-working and co-creating collective care sanctuary. You can tell y'all have put a lot of intentionality into this space. Um, so thank you for welcoming us to, to your space and thank you for being on the show. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> uh, would love for you to kind of give our audience the quick elevator pitch. Who are you both? And Christina, why don't we start with you?
2: Thank you for introducing me, for having me on the podcast as well. Um, but I am um, Mexican, mother of two, um, graduate also of DePaul University. Um, but I am an Ayurvedic health counselor and herbalist and someone who, you know, has been in and out of Humboldt Park my entire life. So this area is something that's very special to me. Getting to work here and run a space here is something that I take To heart, I I have great pride in like being able to be here in this neighborhood working on, you know, holistic wellness and the greater good of
3: like the people that I serve. Denise Ruiz, I am Boricua, born and raised in Chicago between Humble Park and Logan Square, also a mother of two. I am a co-founder here at the Honeycomb Network. I also am a designer. Um, I have another business called Madre de Perla Designs. So I've been doing that for about eight years as well. So yeah, and so I'm, I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having us on this you know on this show and i'm glad that you're loving the vibes it's a whole vibe here and <laughs> we love it when people yeah. feel it you know it's an energy i think that you know we have photos and we have different things but you have to you have to be here to i think experience it and so um we're always really um honored and humbled when people actually do feel that so thank you
1: you know, give our give our audience kind of the the high level view what is the honeycomb network
2: so you You know, you gave our our elevator pitch right in the intro, right? We're a holistic um, co-working space, co-creating space, collective care sanctuary. Um, And each of those words are really intentional for us when we describe the work here, because as Denise said, you know, she'd been ruminating on this space for a long time. I'd been ruminating on what my work would look like in its own space for a very long time. Um, And her and I started working together um, on a different, on a basically a mobile version of this, which was called Books Brunch Botanica. And that was something that centered women of color specifically as facilitators, as leaders, as creators. Um, And we would host them to teach um, workshops that centered um, ancestral medicines, whatever their ancestral medicines were. And that could have been anything from make your own medicine to candle making workshops. But ultimately, we were centering collective care. And not for a profit, not for anything but the need and like the greater good of it. Something we both felt like we needed at that time, something that we and it was something we saw other people like jump at immediately. Um, So we grew really quickly from that. And I bring that up to say that that was kind of like the inspiration for how do we ground this into a brick and mortar and sustain the growth that we've already created with our just little once a month workshops. Right. Um, so, in order to ground it and ground our work into the Honeycomb Network, you know, we needed the co-working space. You know, we need to center professional development. We need to center space for people to do work. Um, and whether that's like mobile work for somewhere else or like entrepreneurial work, we wanted to create that space because though, you know, we're running our own businesses and trying to, you know, run a brick and mortar as well. Um, you know, we need space for that, even though like, we need space creatively, I think more than anything is I think what we want, but we need space to work, right? So co-creating or co-working was like a big piece of like, okay, this is a business model that we could really ground into a, a space. Um, but then the co-creating is a huge element of how we move, right? We want to be creating collectively. We want to bring in as many people from the community as we can. We want to grow our team in a really aligned, intentional way. People that are here for the greater good, people that are here for um, racial healing, unpacking intergenerational trauma, people that are really here to be part of a network in an intentional way, I guess is the best way I could put it. Um, So co-working, co-creating, collective care, I think both of those things bleed into collective care because we need to feed those desires within us in order to be whole, you know, to be, I I always frame it as like, these are liberation moves. We're making these moves collectively to have our own financial liberation, our own energetic, spiritual liberation in the sense that we're pursuing our desires. We're really moving from our integrity, from like our heart center, right? You know, I want to be a creator, a designer or whatever it is. Like you're not going to be whole unless you can really feed those things, right? A lot of people end up in their retirement being like oh I wish I could have danced my whole life or painted you know it doesn't always have to be a creative thing it's just where my mind goes but we want to nurture that now for ourselves and then for the generation beyond us you know both of us are mothers and the divine guidance that we've received consistently in this project is this is legacy building this isn't necessarily for us this is for all the young people that are around that are experiencing like a whole new way of life right now we didn't know we were going to do this in a pandemic we had no (laughs) idea that was going to be a part of it but somehow all of these things are conducive to one another right a lot of people are reimagining what life looks like what business looks like what working among people that look like you looks like you know what seeing BIPOC people in leadership looks like all of these things are things we've been thinking about for years um but are like now kind of bubbling up to the mainstream and are, I think, um, inspiring people in different ways. So I'm really glad that we're here to kind of like hold the space for folks that have been in the game or folks that are just entering and looking for a community. Um, You know, we're here to to hold brave space for that. And so the last part of that, like elevator pitch sanctuary, right? We're co-working, co-creating collective care sanctuary. We come at this with... A very
3: sacred intention really quickly just start, you know, going back to books from and botanica, you know, like a lot of that is um, a lot of that intentionality and root is really what's rooted here. Right. Which is about accessibility, accessibility to wellness, accessibility to knowledge, accessibility to nourishment, to collective care. Right. Um, and how do we take that? How do we bring that here in a way that's like unpretentious, that's accessible to our community, that's taking it from a tower, you know, many times or co-opted from other, you know, um, you know, some other people, you know, other folks, <laughs> white people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I'm just going to say it, you know, or yeah. just people outside yeah. of our communities who have co-opted our culture, our our sacred, you know, um, symbols and history and either, you know, co-opted it or sold it back to us at prices that we can't afford. Right. How do we reclaim ourselves. You know, how do we reclaim ourselves as leaders and reclaim our brilliance, right? And so having that space to do that in a way that's nurturing. Um, And it also talks about the whole person. Um, It's very sacred here in the sense that, you know, like, also, Christina, I have both lost our mothers, our both of our mothers have passed away. And, you know, for us, ancestor reverence, is, is, is integral, you know, and a lot of the things that we do And, and even outside of our own lineage, it's thinking about our ancestors of our culture, right. In our community, in the islands, um, you know, really thinking about how do we honor those ancestors, but also forge new paths. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a bite, we have an, uh, an apothecary, a boutique apothecary. We offer herbs, we offer, um, used books and and new books and that was also part of Books Brunch and Botanica you know again accessible knowledge so we were you know I was popping up there with curated used books at two dollars and three dollars you know Um, and that was really intentional to try to have something that was accessible you know something that people can come to and they can get that knowledge they can get those books they can get those herbs they can connect with you know other BIPOC artists women of color artists um, and see themselves, you know, a lot of times, you know, we're, we're not able to find spaces where we could truly see ourselves. And so how do we, be, you know, provide that reflection? So, you know, the Honeycomb Network really is about providing a reflection. So, you know, and, and, and that's what we want from everything you see here from the art on our walls to the um, artists who are on our shelves to the books on our table all of that is BIPOC centered. So anyone can come here but Black indigenous people of color are who's centered here and it's important to do that because we're not centered out there. So how do we find and create spaces where we can do that where we can nurture those leadership skills? Because the people that we have running our workshops here are not always necessarily college graduates. You know, we're about to have a workshop in the fall with a a you know a long-term community member who's going to come in and teach knitting, you know? To me that's just as important a skill share as someone coming in who may have graduated and has their master's. And so I think it's important to have all of that, all that, all of that space here um, to, to showcase our brilliance and that our brilliance comes in a multitude of ways.
1: You both said a lot of really great stuff and I'm just gonna kind of jump around in response to, to what you shared. Um, first off, totally agree. I think an education is important, but the form that takes is just as important. Mm-hmm. So I don't think everybody's meant to go to higher ed. You know, yeah. I and I think we've done a disservice to a lot of people by eliminating uh, opportunities to get into the trades, for sure. example. I mean, even the services that you all are providing, having those resources um, or programming that you can kind of plug in to learn some of those skills. If someone wanted to get into knitting, if someone wanted to get into herbal care, mm-hmm. you know, what opportunities right. are available to them? Uh, it, it feels like it's kind of hard to find those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you had mentioned something I found really interesting as well, Denise, about co-opting um co-opting um things from our culture and i this is at a, a smaller scale kind of but two examples i remember reading about racism in produce and i found it fascinating because th- the example they were using were, was aguacates how we've been putting aguacates in our food for generations but all of a sudden some people like get on their toast right. and now an avocado is like triple the value um, so hopefully they don't come for our banas. Uh, hopefully they don't come for you know a lot of the stuff that I really enjoy uh, in Puerto Rican cuisine. Um, but it almost feels like it's only a matter of time before mm-hmm. that just gets kind of overtaken as something new when we've been when it's been a part of our culture for for years. Um, same thing with like walking. I had I saw this other story. Uh, it was a study that showed walking barefoot is actually healthier for your, like, spinal alignment, for your body.
3: No kidding. Um, Right? I know. Indigenous people. And then,
1: and then what happened when, when the ships came over, the colonizers Mm -hmm. came over, they called us all savages for walking Mm -hmm. barefooted. And now it's like, now you got shoes that look like feet. Right. And they're making tons of money off that. So it's, I, I, anyway, just. We've
3: always been ahead of the curve. Like, that's why it's important to look at those. You know, and know our history and know our lineage to, mm-hmm. to understand that, especially when you're not taught that. Mm-hmm. So then you 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 do think that you don't have you don't come from anything that's yeah. of knowledge. You know, you do think that something outside of yourself is better than you. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we really want to flip that narrative here.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I think if people challenge themselves to really research, um, because it's not going to be in our our school books, not going to yeah. be in our history books, but even something as simple as like a Latinx person created the color TV. I mean, think about watching Netflix or watching this in black and white. Watching this in color would not be possible without uh, a Latinx individual who made it. Focusing back on the Honeycomb Network, you know, if someone walks through the front door, what are they going to be greeted with? What are they going to experience when they walk through the doors?
3: I mean, they're going to be experiencing a full a full sensory experience from the colors that you're seeing to what you're smelling, the biophilia, all the plants that we have here is also very intentional. You know, um, one of the things that we saw happen, especially during the pandemic, was that people turned to nature to like help with their mental health during this like such a strenuous time Um And that is something that, you know, culturally too, you know, we come from lush lands, right? So how do we create a space where you can come in and you can breathe better? You can breathe, it feels like you're stepping outside of the city. You know, when we have so much brick, so much, you know, concrete, so much, you know, urban, you know, um, landscape, right? Like we are really deprived of that natural element that we really, really need and that we really, really, um, you know, that, that that we need, that we need to survive in a lot of ways and, and survive in a way that that um, that helps us feel, you know, much more at ease, much more grounded and well. So they're going to be greeted with all that, you know from color therapy through the colors that we have here, which is Caribbean. Um, and I think Latin American, like Caribbean, you know, colors to our plants, to our herbs and and arts and wares, you know, um, you're going to be greeted by two women, you know, like we're the business owners. You're going to be greeted by, we have an on-site mental health therapist, which is Dorian Ortega, who you who you know. So we have the, that wellness component here as well. We have Christina, who's an herbalist, who can help if you wanted to talk to her about some ailments that you're having, and maybe she can put together a blend for you a customize That. So, you have multiple ways that you can be supported. You're going to come into a a large space that um, you can come in and you can do your work at. You can be creative in. We really want to tap into our community's brilliance and creativity and think about how do we create outside of the box? You know, like a lot of these institutions are gatekeepers, you know, that really sort of limit you. And we don't want to be limited. We want to create a space where you can really flourish. And so that's what we're trying to encourage. And that's the type of vibe that we're creating. And we want it to feel like a sanctuary. We want you to come in here and be like, whew, I'm so glad I'm in here. I'm so glad I can breathe, you know, because there's a lot. The world is a lot, you know. And so we need spaces where we can um, find support, find health, find wellness, and find each other.
2: When you're here, too, the other thing that greets you is the art. Um, You know, we don't call ourselves an art gallery, but we host um, artists in residence each season. Um, That's when it rotates. And so far, the dialogue that has come just from that alone is, I think, something that's really inspiring for people. Our first resident artist was Sam Kirk, and she did a whole series that was inspired specifically by Humble Park. Um, And the mural that you see right when you walk in the door is La Reina del Barrio. Um, And I think that spoke volumes to people coming in and seeing an Afro-Caribbean woman's face right when you walk in, right? Made by a, you know, Latinx woman. Um, queer woman also that's that's from Chicago right so there's like an element of integrity an element of relatability when you see reflections like that right our second artist Liz Gomez um, had uh, she was a spring artist in residence her entire collection of work was portraits but a lot of it was describing um, how she pulled through her own dark times with challenges of mental mental wellness, you know, getting, working through her, her mental wellness challenges, right? She was working through depression. There were pieces up on the wall that talked about, um, you know, suicide prevention and that kind of work. So each of these things can be, you know, we're talking about racial healing. We're talking about um, mental health for BIPOC folks. All of those things can be really heavy, but when you're in a space like this, that's appealing to your senses, that's nurturing and, provides brave space to kind of have that dialogue. I think is something that is unique here. Our current resident artist Brenda Torres Figueroa, Dressed in Home is Ref and Dressed as Home and Refuge is about gender-based violence, is about, you know, women speaking up and again, things topics that can be heavy. But here, you can unpack that and talk about it and know that there's safe, brave space to share, you know, anything on your mind with regard to that topic. You know, when you walk into the Honeycomb Network, you're supported in all these ways. But this is something that I think is like a almost like a unspoken way to tap into people's needs that they might not even know that they have. Um, you know, creating a space to have dialogues around stuff that's not always like pleasant to talk about. Um, so that's something that I... Really, really take pride in here of, of bringing people that know how to facilitate space around those conversations, um, and know how to show it creatively and express it creatively, and show that it's okay to talk about these things, and have them show up in your work and be centered and featured. Even
1: I love that, and I you, the, your point about the uh, first artist in residence you had here to have it was a you said it was a portrait of Afro Latina, mm-hmm. right? I think that's so important to have that at the forefront because our African roots are so ignored, um, put to the backdrop, if not just not acknowledged um, completely. So to be like, bam, this is us, you know, that's that's great, 100 percent. And even like and then um, even your current artist in residence, it was Brenda Torres Mm -hmm. Figueroa. Figueroa. Uh, Shout out to Brenda. (laughs) Uh, had some really good interactions with Brenda in the past. And this is one of her pieces as well, right? Yes. Um, This is a photo, yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh,
3: wow.
2: Yeah, and she placed it strategically. So this is her daughter looking at her ancestors. That's Brenda's, like, mother, I think grandmother, some of her tias. And so, you know, it's a consistent dialogue um, thematically and, like, abstractly. Mm about how do
3: we see each other? What are we saying to each other? What are those women telling her, you know? Um, It's always that dialogue. That's always that dialogue that we're trying to foster here in some type of way. Like how do we reach back, but still continue to move forward? Yeah.
1: Well, and I, and I think it's I think it's so important to to really lift up women in our community. Um, so I think the fact that you're lifting up those voices and making sure that the, that imagery is front and center is so, so critical um, to the, the, the dialogue that we need in our cultures. Uh, Christina, you mentioned opening up during the pandemic. What was that experience like? Because that sounds so intense. And I remember reading, I think it was a Sun Times article or maybe it was a block club, Sun Times, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's when you first were on my radar because a former guest of the show, friend of the show, um, uh, Dory, uh, she had been on the show to talk about Fly Radical. I was like, oh, let me read up on this. And then my next, qu- I found, first thing I found an interesting, second thing I was like, what is going in? What is going through these women's minds? Yeah. Like, this is intense. <laughs> like, how, listen, this is such a big space. I mean, Walk us through that experience because were you planning to open just before the pandemic or did you decide during the pandemic? To open like how did that so
2: it was just before and we'll definitely both need to speak on this part but like especially as mothers like that's
1: I mean my gosh and like the the um businesses you each have in your own lives I mean sorry Mm so I didn't mean to interrupt you but no
2: it's fine yeah I had a seven month old at the time and was like brand new mother of two which was huge for me um but You know, like Denise had mentioned earlier, she had been ruminating on this for a long time, right? This was something that I had envisioned for years as well. And not exactly as it is, but just running a space collectively where we can just nurture our respective businesses and then nurture the things we're doing together and have other people do the same. That was kind of really the bones of what it looked like, you know. Um, And so, you know, we had been doing Books Brunch Botanica since 2017 It grew really fast from monthly workshops, you know, sitting on a floor in a circle at a wellness center that I was working at to, you know, many thousand square feet loft in Humboldt Park, um, you know, with multiple different rooms of activity, multiple workshops happening, a market that centered specifically women of color, DJs, live music, live art, food, um, you know, entertainment, all this stuff. Right. And so in December of, I think that was 2019 or 2018, you know, someone who built with us for our, one of our events was like, y'all have grown, outgrown the space. Like, what are you going to do? And we're just like, um, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, we started kind of looking around casually at spaces and what we knew was that what we had seen so far on the market wasn't right for us, but it let us know that like something was coming. Um, so you know, come 2020, Denise, lit, you know, we both had, at that time lived with like within a mile of here, on either side of Division or on either side of California, right? And so we would go back and forth through here all the time. Denise, just on a whim, was like driving by and was like, "That old Joel's Hardware has been empty. Like, let me let me just call." And so there was really no intention of starting when we started. It was just literally divine timing. And full transparency, I was like, no, Denise, I cannot do this right now. Like uh, the baby's seven months old. I've got a four-year-old. I just spent all this money rebranding Ayurvedic Elements, which is my wellness brand, my herbal um, formula line. Um, You know, just really thinking about what's practical. And she was like, I'm holding your seat, sis. (laughs) Like (laughs) I'm starting. Do you trust me? Um, and that's a huge, I think, piece of our work, you know, is that absolutely I trust her 100%. And I think, you know, that value is shared between us. And I think that's hard f- for adults, right? Mm-hmm. To just even trust in one another and in-, in that deeply, right? Um, so it began with me mm-hmm. saying no, <laughs> with this space coming up, with getting the keys the first week of March 2020. That wow. was like, we had no idea what was ahead of us. Yeah.
1: Because um, that's the month we officially started yeah, going into we, lockdown. Exactly, yeah. like yeah. second
2: week of March, yeah. um, right before my birthday. We had, had oh. plans
3: for April. Even oh. though, in hindsight, though, it yeah. wouldn't have worked out. It yeah, would have been yeah. it, we would have, we were really jumping ahead. Um, but then, yeah, this this space sort of called to me. Um, it called to me. It kept, I kept looking at it, you know. And I knew hard, Joel's hardware, what it was before, for many years. And you know, I just saw it continuously empty and nobody was saying I was like why is no one taking this you know and um, I'd had no I, I had no intention to you know like get into any kind of lease with it my intention when I first called was to see about us using it for a pop-up for our for our market let's take over the space activate the space you know um, for maybe a weekend and see you know so when I called that's that was the intention and then with further com- conversation he convinced me to the broker convinced me to come in And I came in and I was like, there's no way because this was like completely gutted. I mean, we didn't have floors. There was like wires sticking on. I was like, no, I already I already shut it down as soon as I walked in. Like, this was nice. This was fun to come see it, you know, but like this is not going to happen. And then, you know, he said that the landlord can actually build it out. So I was like, "Okay, wait a minute, you know. So then further conversation, you know, I started, you know, just getting sort of that seed of hope, like maybe this could work, you know. And so, yeah, you know, I really went to Christina originally, you know, she was just like, no, understandably. So, you know, like having a baby, you know, just a few months ahead, you know, all, I understood it. I tried to actually um, connect with some other folks to see if I can get another business partner to go in on this with me. And all of those business partners fell through like within weeks. Um, Because it wasn't meant to be that, it was meant to be this, you know, and I think that we just had to come around to understanding that and step out of our fears, both of us, and just know that this is what it was, you know, supposed to be. Um, And so, yeah, so we got it. Um, We had all these plans that we were going to be doing for like April, May. you know, we thought we were going to do all these things. And then the pandemic hit, you know, and um, that was very difficult. You know, it was difficult. And then it was also a blessing in disguise, if I'm going to be really, really transparent, because it actually allowed us the time to work a lot of the kinks out, do some, you know, virtual things, connect with people in a different way, really sort of like ground into what do we want this place to be? Why is this coming up in this time? There's there's a bigger purpose for this. And what is it? Right. And so it allowed us that time to really flesh that out, to really experiment, to connect with people we probably wouldn't have connected with had this pandemic happened, not happened, right? And so, and also it showed us how long it really takes to build out a double space, you know, because it wasn't built out until like early
2: summer, maybe? From July to October, we were in here full time, like every day, yeah, like every single day, just like pruning and primping and, and praying and all the things, and so... Yeah, it takes months to build a sanctuary.
1: (laughs) I and you I have been wondering, I've been wondering what this space was before. Because I mean, you look around Paseo Boricua, you have a lot of businesses that are thriving. You also have a lot of empty storefronts. So I totally forgot that this was the old Joe's hardware. As the BIPOC community uh, has opportunities like this in front of them. Similar to like when you apply for a job and the job offer comes through. And it was almost like this tendency, well, if I say no to this salary they're offering me, maybe I they're not going to come back with a counteroffer and go to the next candidate. Right. So a lot of people, men, women of color, will um, or non-binary folks will just accept that, yep. that first offer. Yep. When you say hardcore negotiations, yes. what would you say would be helpful to someone that's BIPOC that is looking to open up a business and the landlord's like, this is what we can do? Yeah. And you're like, oh, no, let's elevate that a bit more. Let's we we yeah. we know our worth. And, right. you know, here's what we'd like to see. Right. You take it or leave it. Right. Um, what what was that? Walk us through that process.
3: Um. I think that you have to have a real clear vision as to what you're trying to do. And you need mm-hmm. to be able to convey the value of what you're doing. And you need to convey it in a way that they understand that your success will be their success. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's that component. Um. I didn't have a lot to lose. To be honest you know i mean if they he said no i walk away we had plans you know we were gonna keep moving regardless you know um so it really was less you know i think for me in that time even though um i was very serious and really trying to negotiate and really going back and forth i mean we went back and forth a few times they sent me something i would send it back you know and we kind of went back and forth until we agreed You know, and a lot of my, I, you know, I advocated. I advocated for us as, you know, first time business owners. I advocated for us as, you know, like trying to have success in that first year, you know. And, you know, I just advocated as much as I could in terms of like what we were trying to do, how we were going to do it, created a pitch deck for the landlord. You know, I think you just have to really... Show them that you're not playing games, you know, like I'm not playing games. However, I need a strong footing and foundation in order to be successful in this business. At the end of the day, you know, like you can say yes and jump into a business. And then, you know, especially now understanding what it takes. I understand how people can lose their businesses in a year, five years. It's very difficult. So you have to know that, you know, like when you're going in, you know, you have to have the advocacy to show that, you know your vision, you know, needs to be supported. And that also will support them. That will also thrive. As you thrive, the landlord will thrive, right? Like you'll continue to thrive because you'll continue to be here in this space and he won't have to like empty it out, look for new, you know, tenants. So you, you kind of have to convince them that that foundation is really, really important. A lot of times they're just trying to fill it. You know, they don't really care, you know, what business is in here. They're trying to fill it, they're trying to get their rent, but you have to make them, recognize you. You have to make them look at you and think about what you're trying to do and how so yeah. that they can understand that that's also going to reflect them and their business and their success.
1: I like that a lot. I think that's a great point. And what's your value proposition? Mm-hmm. You know, I I love that you said, you know, our success is going to be your success. Do you want that monthly income or not? And playing with house money definitely helps. You have that yeah. leverage. Can you give us a can give me a sense of what, is, what do your own support systems look like? Like I know we talked about like building a team so y'all have an accountant, right? Um, you know, get getting a lawyer, figuring out ways to delegate and be realistic with what can I accomplish? What do I need some support with? Um, but also, um, you know, getting this space. Like you, you both blazed your own trail into this.
2: Um, that is, it's a... Sp- it's tough because it's a small support system, but it's a large support system at the same time, you know? Yeah, yeah. it is it is small and mighty. Yeah. You know, in my specific home, it's like, you know, I have two small children that I'm caring for that I was homeschooling also during the initial part of this whole past year. So that was tough being like a kindergarten teacher, a first grade teacher, an herbalist, a business owner, a partner, a business partner, a partner with my actual partner, you know, like my support system at home is small but like i'm a, i wouldn't have been able to do this work also without the pandemic because what it did was put my partner alfredo out of work and so we had a huge role reversal happen where in order for me to be here and do the work that i need to do and focus you know he is has been their primary caregiver at least during business hours since we started in 2020 um And like, that is an amazing shift. It was also an amazing shift for my children too, to be like, where's mom going? And it's not that I never worked, but I've worked outside of home now more than I ever have in their whole lives. And so for them to see that and see that they can rely on both of us for care, both of us for nourishment, for nurturing, and also recognize like, oh, mom has stuff to do too. She's not just my mom. And as young boys, recognizing that I think is something so important to realize that like I'm a mother before anything, but they're also seeing me make liberation moves for all of us. You know, my son has come to work with me multiple times and gets the thrill of like, oh, mom, I get to help you in the shop like this is like on Sesame Street or, you know, (laughs) see reflections of himself. Being a a leader at some point, like he asked me this week, mom, so you're the leader of your work, right? And I'm like, yeah, I am. And he's just like, that is so cool. Can I be the leader of my work? You know, and he has all kinds of ideas about what he wants to do. Right. Um, Our network of support outside of that, truthfully, is so many women. Um, You know, we built Books, Brunch and Botanica, censoring women of color. We are women of color, have naturally been around communities of of women all of our lives and I think I took this for granted until recognizing our how strong our community of women is that what I took for granted is that not all women have this circle of women around them Um, and I'm so eternally grateful for the women that are around us because when we have had safety issues here we've been challenged by gentrifiers here have had vandalism here The immediate responders are women, mothers, (laughs) women, um, you know, also, you know, our, our brothers have helped us as, as well. But truthfully, the people that have offered to like, I'll stake out your space overnight, I'll have a sleep over there, All this are all women and mothers, and specifically women of color coming to be, you know, security guards. The only time we've hired security guards for an event, it was two women, you know.
3: But the men didn't want to do it because it was Humble Park at night during the festival, right? Were- or during June, June, you know, and there was a lot going on this mm-hmm. this past one, right? Mm-hmm. But um, sure. So, you know, like, or they were trying to charge us an exorbitant amount to because they, you know, because of safety. And I get it, but also, you know, but also, you know, like surprised. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Women help hold so, us. They hold Surprise. us down. Tell
1: us a little tell me a little bit more about that. Um, because I did see that on your social media. You had mentioned like, hey, everybody, someone attacked <laughs> our someone attacked our shop again.
3: Again, yeah.
1: Um, what 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 happened which time you, we could go to both i mean we could go to both like what happened both times like uh, and and uh no let's just start there what ha- what happened both times
3: well, we, you know, <laughs> we started with um, resistance from some of the residents, even in this, was, you know, this building has is also, you know, holds residents here and in the building. And all of them are from not from here. Like i pretty much I would say all of them that are in this building are not from here. They're not even from Chicago, a lot of them. And so, you know, we were dealing with them. Um doing some things and, you know, we were just dealing with some, um, petty harassment harassment things. They were accusing us of like, they, they were accusing us of stealing. They were accusing us of doing all kinds of stuff. They were, um, waiting till we left and like leaving letters and notes or, or like vandalizing garbage. They were throwing food, um, in front of our doors. They were just, they were doing a lot of really dirty things, you know, but then we couldn't, you know, say that they were doing them because they were doing them at night. Mm And so it was a lot of tension um, for a while and, um, you know, some confrontations for sure. Um, and it
1: was a confrontations over the type of conversations you were hosting in this space Mm -mm,
3: because we hadn't even opened yet this is before we even opened this is we're like literally in here building chairs you know like we hadn't even opened Um, yet and we were already dealing with a lot of this yeah um and then you know before we opened you know it, it calmed down we were able to have you know kind of a final confrontation and conversation that then kind of like um alleviated that situation um but it was tense and, you know, it was tense because it was like, you know, a male, a white male who was like doing this to us mostly, you know, and. um
1: Did he just really like Joe's hardware? Or no, was like, he, just, he just like, where am I going to buy my hammers? Like no, says,
3: he didn't even know about that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And just, you know, it was just like real. It was really a lot of intimidation tactics, you know, being done. Um, So then that that chilled out and, you know, we were able to open and, you know, fine. And then we started getting other things again happening. You know, people were leaving like feces in front of our door, you know, Um, then Christina came and and they had bombed our storefront with eggs, you know, like two dozen eggs on a day we were gonna do a pop up. And again, you know, speaking to our community, right? That you asked about the women that came for the pop up because it was really women of color, black and black and Latinx women. They came in their gym shoes, like we're ready, you know what I mean? And so that really says a lot, you know, when when. People yeah. show up in that way because we could have could have been like, oh, that's a lot happening over there. And let me just, you know, not go. Or, you know what I'm saying? Or or just like mind my business, you know, um, and that would have been totally fa- fair and valid for them to do, to be honest. But they didn't. You know, they came in. They helped us. They helped us clean. They, you know, stood there. They, they offered assistance. What do we, you know, asked us what we needed. We're ready to. For whatever, you know, Um, they were ready for whatever.
1: So that second, so that second uh, attack on, on um, your space, the, the egg bombing, right? Mm -hmm. That was the second one. Mm -hmm. Um, Where do you think that came from?
3: It could be anything, honestly, when that's one of the things that that's one of the things that we said, you know, because people were saying that, like, what could it be? What could it be? And I was like, honestly, it could be anything. It could be, you know, the fact that of who we're centering. It could be the fact that we're calling out gentrification uh, as well in our programming. It could be the fact that we're speaking on LGBTQ and trans rights. It could be the fact that we're talking about abolition. It could be all of those things that people can be really upset about. People have a myriad of ways to be upset with us, you know, in terms of us pushing, pushing back on um, some of these structures that we feel like have been really damaging and harmful to our communities. And how do we find ways to unpack and create something different? People don't like different. It's hard. You know, um, people really like to stay comfortable or in their privilege, or even if they don't like it, are scared, you know, to step outside and think about what that could look like, a possibility of a new world and a new dynamic, a new system can look like. Um, and you're gonna get resistance. You know, you're gonna get resistance. So we're getting, we've gotten resistance for sure. Yeah. But no, to this day, we don't know who did it. People have tagged our stuff. I mean, it's been left and right, but um, but we're really protected and you know, even with all that, there's been a lot of protection too. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's, that's I mean, that takes a lot of courage, a lot of bravery to kind of withstand, uh, I'm like, I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing it, but like dentist a menace type tactics, like who leaves crap on someone? It's like I'm surprised, like I'm surprised they didn't do like a, a ding dong dash and like light it on fire type of thing. It just doesn't, that doesn't, that's not constructive, doesn't help anybody. Um, but it, yeah, I think it, it is reflective to what a lot of people that uh born and raised here are trying to keep their roots, stay rooted here, have experience. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, paseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show. So, we talked about uh, the importance of passing down generational knowledge. Uh, we talked about generational trauma, the importance of um, giving yourself space and finding opportunities to really work on uh, your own well being, holistic well being. Uh, just curious in your own lives, how do you address uh, the issue of generational trauma? How do you address your own well being so that your mind, body, soul are in alignment?
2: So I would say for me, well, in general, it's challenging. It's something that takes like a lot of work every day and it's a lot of little bites or at least that's what works for me is doing it in like all these bite size micro ways. Um, but the way I personally unpack generational trauma is this, you know, it's this work, right? It's showing up every day. Whether I'm afraid or tired or uncertain of what I need to do here, it's reminding myself that this is bigger than me, that I was divinely guided to get to this place. And regardless of what it looks like in my bank account or in accolades or in any of those things, I'm showing up every single day. And for me, that's like a ceremony, right? I'm coming here every day in a good way to try to leave the space better than when I found it to leave myself better than when I started at the day, right? Um, so committing to this work and this seeing this dream manifest into something sustainable, long-term, something that's legacy building, that's like my way of unpacking my intergenerational trauma because I was raised by a single mother who had four daughters, you know, and had all these dreams that she couldn't achieve in her lifetime, but, you know, in her words was like, each of you are better than me and each of you are seeing out something that I saw for myself. And that's kind of how I feel successful. Um, so this work is part of it. But then on a like very personal level, it's, you know, making sure that I'm hydrated. <laughs> it's it's like, you know, measuring my 22 ounce thermos to make sure I've got dandelion root tea in there or my ashwagandha tea. Um, It's making sure that I'm like breathing deep into my belly and not being tense. Um, It's making sure that like my face is relaxed and I'm blinking slowly and speaking from a, you know, from my heart center as much as I can. Right. So it's like taking my actual physical bodily functions into account throughout the day, right? Trying to remember to nourish as much as I can, try to make my own food as much as I can. Um, because each of those things I believe are medicine. They're all sacred rituals. Um, and that's part of what my work is. You know, my, my, my hashtags always for Ayurvedic elements are like food, herbs, rituals. When you lean on those routines, um, but you ritualize them and make them more sacred. It's less of a like maintenance, and it's more of a like joyful act, right? Remembering to drink warm water, trying not to drink as much coffee as I as my body thinks I need, right? Um, so it's like all these little sacred moments, and and then also it's it's raising my my children to see me in a different way than like I think women have been seen in their families prior to this generation, right? I want my sons to see the fact that their dad is here to hold space for us in all the ways, not just the ways a man should, um, and help them recognize what does it mean to be sensitive? What does it mean to be um, open and free and like not even think about gender roles? You know, I try to not put gender on them. I try to like let them just be expressive people I try to teach them language that, um, you know, represents as much. And so, you know, that's also part of unpacking my intergenerational trauma is being really intentional about how I raise my children, you know, trying to homeschool them, trying not to ever hit them, <laughs> trying to, um, you know, be calm for them when they're not. Um, and think about parenting in like a completely different way than anyone in my lineage has before me right and honoring what i have learned from my parents um but also trying to make it that much better so that just like my mother said i was better than her my children are going to be better than me and we're going to keep this legacy moving forward until you know like denise said earlier we're we're reflecting to bipoc here that we are brilliant that we do have skills that we can be in leadership and so in order to see that reflected back out and reflected back to us from the world, like we need to be sharing this with our children, regardless of how old they are talking about abolition, talking about racism, talking about what it means to be respectful and kind and all of that stuff. Right. Um, it starts at three years old and seven years old and 17. Um, so those are all some of the ways that that I'm working on that work
3: personally yeah, I think much like Christina, um, this part of this work is, is, is what that is. It's reflecting that. It's, it's trying to create what I felt like I always needed, you know, um, trying to have a model that I needed. That's, that's part of the unpacking for me, having that space to do it, com- having connecting with different types of people with different um, experiences and giving space to listen, to, you know, absorb and to um, offer support um, that's, that's a big one. Also, you know, again, with the kids, I, f- I feel like, yeah, I just am pretty much like co-signing all of that because that's super important to me as well. You know, like my child comes here and works after school, has been part of the Heal on Academy program that started with our mental health therapist, um, is also, also helped with mural making, like things like that, you know, where we have a space where they can come in and, um, have a chance to unpack some of those harder things that, you know, we were trying to figure out how to navigate, that our parents were trying to figure out how to navigate, right? Our parents were in survival mode many times, you know, didn't have access to a therapist that looked like them, that was accessible to them. So we have a therapist that looks like them, is accessible to them here. So always thinking about what did I need? What did we need? What do I, what have we heard that we need? What do, what do our children need? Right. And how do we build upon that need? Um, in terms of like personally, I need to get better. You know, like that's one of the things that I've, um, I've come up against. I think, um, walking the talk in terms of wellness, you know, like I think it's very hard you know, sometimes to navigate my tendency to overwork, especially because this is a business that like falls all on our shoulders. There's a lot that goes into it and we have a lot to do. And so, you know, also trying to remember, and I have people around me like Dorian, like Christina, who are like, did you drink water today? Have you eaten lunch today? You know, like having also sometimes a support system around you who remembers before you do, you know, is also important because I think a lot of times we can self-sacrifice you know, sometimes for, you know, we had, you know, and so that's something I'm I'm trying to unpack and, and you know, do better at as well. Um, prayer is big for me, you know, um, as much as people, you know, kind of are like, you know, prayer can be this sort of thing that people look down upon or, you know, because a lot of times it's sort of like synony- synonymous with like inaction, right? Like thoughts and prayers. But I also feel like within the last few years, I've really learned how much prayer is like important in my life, you know, and and needed for me to ground. And I pray pray differently. I also have a a really strong uh, connection with my ancestor lineage, my mother who crossed over. That's very important spiritual practice for me. Um, I find ways to, you know, create programming here that I feel like I need. So like, you know, I love to write, but I don't always have the time or can't find that time. So let me create, you know, this workshop, writing workshop that was sort of like, you know, I'm sure that if I'm feeling this, other people are feeling this. So then that group comes and then now I'm here and I'm writing and I'm part of something that's not only helping serve me and unpacking some of my stuff and what I need, but also giving that back, you know. And so always finding these ways to sort of like connect those dots, you know, like, you know, whatever's good working for me, you know, I want to have that available here for others and vice versa, you know. So those are some of the ways for sure. Um, Definitely um, thinking about, you you know, like a lot of our programming here is intergenerational. So I feel like that's another thing that we're trying to think about, you know, like that's very indigenous, like how we work together intergenerationally. Like we have programming here for young folks, kids. We have programming here for teens. We have programming here for adults. We have elders who come in. And so like we learn from all of them and we can also be nourished by all of them. So that's, that's some of the work. Yeah.
1: Another question I wanted to ask you all just to kind of close out our conversation um one also i mean i appreciate your honesty your transparency and you know, kind of giving us a peek into you know the what i think is a beautiful world of and journey of well-being I mean, we all kind of have our own own path to that um but uh speaking of like our own paths um our identities just curious to hear from you you know denise let's start with you you know what does being puerto rican mean to you Mm -hmm. christina as the mexicana that's invited to the boricua barbecue here (laughs) um you know super interested to hear from you like what does being mexicana mean to you so denise let's let's start with you Mm.
3: being boricua to me um is wow that's a deep question like how do i even begin to explain that i feel like it's my roots right like it's 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 the core of me, um, being Boricua for me, I'm also of the diaspora, you know, I was born and raised in Chicago, you know, I've traveled, you know, back and forth to the island, but have the same kind of like reaction sometimes, you know, ni de aquí ni de allá, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, I speak Spanglish, you know, um, I understand better than I speak, you know, that in, in that sense too, which has also been, you know, something that, you know, many times, um, we're shamed about, Right but I'm very Puerto Rican to my core, you know, like I'm, You know, from my lands, the connection that I feel to the lands, to the connection that I feel to the ancestors, to the connection that I feel to our history. I feel like being Boricua is being resilient. We are resilient people. Our island is small but mighty, and we take that mighty spirit everywhere we go. The fact that we've been able to be, the, the fact that we have been so colonized and so brutalized, and are able to still stand in our culture the way that we do, speaks to our resilience, speaks to our brilliance, and speaks to our cultural integrity. And that to me is very, uh, profound and very unique to us as people. Um, we have, you know, so much light that we offer. We have so much spiritual, um, connection to lands and to herbs. And that's part of, you know, what we try to represent here. Um, we have been, um, really overlooked, even within the Latinx umbrella, right? Like, it's it's not always something that I always felt connected to. It felt very much like we were excluded in that way. I think that, you know, again, we're still able to stand on our own. I feel like we are, I have a spirit of resiliency in me in, um, and of love, of culture, and of family, of food, and understanding—you know—the ways that it connects with us and connects with our, our spirits and our culture. And I think that that comes from being Boricua, you know. Like, you know, I think that that comes from um, from the roots. You know, like I just, I just, I don't know how else to explain it. To me, being Puerto Rican is such a major thing for me, and a major part of my life, a major part of my culture, a a major part of my the way I think on a a political level. All of that comes from um, being Puerto Rican and having the experiences of being Puerto Rican, especially in the diaspora. So that's what that means for me: just resiliency and love. You know, so yeah.
1: Cristina, what about you?
3: Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough question.
2: The first thing that came to mind when you said, what does it mean to be Mexican? It's like the first thing that I think of is it means to be first nation, you know? Um, and that breaks down to, you could call me Mexican. (laughs) You could, you could, you know, wave the Mexican flag around me. None of that is what calls to my soul, right? First nation is that the all of these lands are my lands I'm indigenous to here you know as indigenous as these trees right um and it what it signifies to me is like a groundedness um something that like something that can't be moved something that can't be shaken something that can't be taken from me it's this is me and I am this, right? It's like a, a universal connection. That's what being, you know, so-called Mexican feels like or means to me is that, you know, in my moments of struggle or worry, overwhelm, any of those things, like I'm reminded of of First Nation teachings, right? If you're feeling shaky, look at a mountain, look at a tree. Do they move? No, they're not shakable, right? Be like water. You can overwhelm anything. You can penetrate anything. And these are the things that I think of when I think about what it means to be like indigenous to these lands, like I, I am, I am this right. And um, community is the other thing that I think of when I think about being Mexican, right. Our indigenous ways were we, there is no I, right. It's it's, we are a collective. It's that we heal together. We learn together. We build together. We learn about the stars together. Um, And I think that's the third thing I think about with regard to like my roots is that my people studied the stars in a way that like, not many other like indigenous folks in the world did. And maybe that could be ignorant, cause I don't know, <laughs> actually. I know that there's many, um, you know, wisdom keepers of like star knowledge in Africa and other places, right? But what we did for astronomy um, in regards to like first nation peoples of like the Mexican country is like out of this world, what people were studying hundreds and hundreds of years ago and what we knew and still know, right? So um, my inner wisdom and connection to the cosmos is what I really hold on to because all of that knowledge was stolen from us, like burned to the ground and tried to like, er there was the eradication, attempt of eradication. And that was not possible considering how many people were murdered and killed as a result of colonization on this side of the world alone um the fact that any of us are still here and holding this sacred wisdom is like magical to me and when I think about how strong my intuition is I think about my connection to my ancestors and to this land it's it's what helps you know you were talking to Denise about like talk about this hardcore negotiation right that is All comes from intuition. Denise didn't get a degree in business. Her intuition is strong because of her connection to her roots. My intuition is like something that I've questioned my whole life because I feel like I've always had an an alternative source of information that I didn't know where it came from. And it took, you know, all these rites of passages throughout my life for me to recognize every single time my intuition is right, you know? And that comes from a sacred knowing that I believe reminds me of my connection to the cosmos and to this land. And that is like, for me, the definition of First Nation, right? These, these are my ways. I'm always gonna be coming back to them, relearning them, remembering them because I don't have a book to read and I don't have mentors or First Nation leaders around me all the time. Um, that information is is hard to access. Um, And so that's part of what it means. And it connects again with what we do here at the Honeycomb Network, because we are trying to create pathways back to those sacred um, teachings, you know, like um, are not something you can read about, like they're not things you can Google. They're not, you know, it's like information that was so sacred and so like illegal (laughs) that like people are still afraid to come out and talk about things. I've had women come here this summer specifically asking me about buying tarot decks, about buying smudge sticks. And were like whispering to me about where can I learn more about this? What can I do with this? Because we are still traumatized by being burned at the stake, by being brujas. You know, it's like people are all trendy about like, oh, bruja this and bruja that. And it's like, there's a lot of blood shed on this land for those practices, for things that we have the privilege of sharing in the open right now. And so we take those things very ser- very seriously here. And that's also part of what makes us a sanctuary is that this is a brave space that is holding space for things that women and men have died for very recently, you know, for our spiritual beliefs, for our sacred beliefs, for how we move in the world. So, um. Speaking loudly and proudly about, you know, indigenous ways is something that is part of my identity and part of me figuring out how to circle back to my roots without having like a guidebook
1: (laughs) or a mentor. I think those are two of the most in-depth responses we've ever gotten <laughs> I'm like, I'm to I'm that still question. More, like, I should have said that. Oh, I know, I'm like, know like, I know, and I, and I, and, I, and I'm sure, I'm sure, like as you reflect on it, I'm, I'm sure, like there's no limit to the depths of what you can really, the light you can shed on your own journeys and how you connect to your identity and then and the ancestors. Um, but I, that's why I really like that question because everybody has a unique response. Um, so again, appreciate. You know, you going to that detail, going there. No, no, don't apologize. Never <laughs> apologize for that. Those, That's why you have the space to have those yeah. types of conversations, right? Yeah. So if people want to learn more about the Honeycomb Network, keep up with you all. How can they do that? Give us the website, the social media channels if they want to just keep up with you all beyond this conversation.
2: Yeah, people can find us at com. Um, they can also check out our Instagram or Facebook, Honeycomb Network.
1: Lots of ways to stay connected and get involved. Love it. And, uh, you know, again, just really appreciative of, of your time, appreciative of you opening up your space to us yeah. to, to even have this conversation. Um, I know it was a long time in the making, but as we've kind of hinted at, hinted at uh, and touched on in this conversation, things are meant to happen for a reason. And Absolutely. they happen in their own time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Christina Gutierrez. Denise Ruiz, thank you for being on the Paseo podcast today.
3: Thank you so much for inviting us and for the questions and just like carving this space to, um, you know, hear us and give us a platform to speak on what we're doing and and why. So thank you so much as well.
1: Ditto. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate y'all. Thank you. Shout out to Denise and Cristina for opening up their space to me and to our team. Uh, It felt so good to record in person with them in their space. They actually just celebrated their one year anniversary. So it's really nice to see a startup like them still going strong in this current pandemic climate. Um, One thing that did stand out to me and made me like super freaking sad uh, was that they've been dealing with repeated threats and vandalism. Um, So just weird you know all they're trying to do is create space centered on the needs of the community especially BIPOC folks so at the top of the show I did mention that uh, we recorded this episode back in September well um, this past week their space was vandalized again Uh, someone put crazy glue in all of their keyholes in the dark of the night so no one could enter the honeycomb network the next day which meant their children's programming that morning had to be canceled until they could figure out a way to enter the building. We'll put the article from ABC News in the show notes for you to learn more. But in short, they installed security cameras and have the person responsible on tape. So it turns out it's a tenant that's renting an apartment. Uh, If I'm remembering correctly, it's either in the same building as them or uh, in a neighboring building. So the main contact that you wanna reach out to if you feel so compelled uh, is Matt. Seamus. Um, he's uh, going to be the point person there at the management company. The email is M, S as in Sam, H as in Harry, A as in Amy, M as in May, I as in Iris, S as in Sam, at A, P as in Peter, Chicago.com. That's M-S-H-A-M-I-S, at ap com. The management number is 956 956- 2671950 again that's 956 1950 and just so you all know criminal charges have already been filed and the management company knows who it is Uh, Plus the landlords, attorneys, and police know who it is as well. So we're sending all the good vibes we possibly can to to Denise and Cristina, because this is, again, just such a weird, unjust, and just plain scary thing to experience over and over again without any consequences to the perpetrator involved. So the people that need to know, know, but I think they need to hear your voice too. So if you enjoyed the interview with them, if you believe in what they're doing, um, if you read the ABC article, you know, and and all that makes you feel like doing something, uh, emailing, calling the management company is an easy way to to show that support. Okay, transitioning from one crappy situation to another, the PC 1003 debt bill in Puerto Rico recently became law. It has been met with protests, anger and frustration from Puerto Rican residents before and after its passage. So let's be clear that this has been something that's been bubbling for a while now. and the reason it's been bubbling, uh, is because it attacks pensions, education, and public services that many people need to survive in order to pay off venture capitalists for loans that have not been audited. And that, uh, we have no idea whether or not those loans were, were legally taken out with that being said, here's our interview with freelance journalists from Puerto Rico, uh, Carlos Barrios Polanco to bring us up to speed on what we should know about the controversial bill, now law, known as PC-1003. I'm joined today by a returning guest, Uh, His name is Carlos Barrios Polanco. He is a freelance independent journalist focused on extremism, political corruption, and civil unrest in Puerto Rico. Uh, Carlos, welcome back to the Paseo Podcast. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. It's good to be back. Right. It's a. a sh- it was a short wait, but it feels great to be back. Yeah, no, really glad to have you back. Um, and for people listening, this is very impromptu. I literally hit up Carlos like a few hours ago, um, because I've been seeing a, a, a big topic of discussion online, at least on Puerto Rico Twitter or Puerto Rican Twitter, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, around this legislation that's currently, um, I don't know, I don't know if this is the right word because I'm not as close to it as Carlos is, but being debated, being protested against. Um, in the legislative halls of Puerto Rico. The bill is called uh, PC-1003. So for people listening, I have been on the periphery of this news. So I'm going to be like a student in a classroom asking Carlos all types of questions. So um, Carlos, let's just dive right into it. What should people know about the (laughs) PC-1003 bill?
0: So uh, PC-1003 was a bill proposed by the House of Representatives in Puerto Rico with the aim to cut Puerto Rico's debt alongside the Financial Oversight Management Board of Puerto Rico's debt restructuring plan. And uh, the most important thing to know is that PC 1003 has now been passed into law. It got passed into law in the late hours of October 26, 2021, and it's now called Law 53. The law to put an end to Puerto Rico's bankruptcy. Uh, so basically, the aim of the law, as the PR government puts it, is to end uh, or to cut in half the uh, to cut in half Puerto Rico's debt. Meanwhile, uh, people in opposition to the law and to the bill have uh, actively said that the thing that it'll do is increase Puerto Rico's debt while paying off vulture funds. So while it'll pay like the shareholders, it'll actively make Puerto Ricans' lives worse than worse than it already is. The original PC-1000 Free was set to cut pensions, education, and public utilities. The language in law, 50 Free, which is what PC-1000 Free is now called, does not cut pensions, but it does freeze pensions for teachers and judges uh, and it eliminates cost of life adjustments.
1: What's up with that? Why is it that when it comes to legislation like this to save money, pensions are one of the first things on the table to get cut. How does like, how does, like, I don't know. like, I, you said it was introduced in the house. So I am just trying to figure out what representatives, what type of representative in Puerto Rico would actually with a straight face say, yeah, we want to save money by cutting your money.
0: The House bill was mostly put on by uh new progressive and popular Democratic Party members. And one uh one of them, I can't remember who right now, um, basically said like things are gonna be tight, but we'll pay it, which was like immediately met with just like in on on Twitter and social media, immediately met with a wave of booze. Cause I think the the quote unquote logic of cutting pensions is that you, people who are working now won't see that effect until like 20, 30 years in the future. So they make the promise. So oh, no, things will change from now to then, which is the promise that lawmakers make about Puerto Rico's debt that you're working. So for example, I'm, I'm 24 years old. I'm working now. By the time that you retire, we'll have fixed those like ugly bits of debt in the middle. And you'll be getting that pension by the time you're 65 or whatever. But the, the truth is that rarely – that's rarely what has happened in in the history of Puerto Rico and the history of uh, economics worldwide is that once you start seeing cuts to pensions, it's very rare that those ever go back to the amount that they were. Instead, they're usually pens- – uh, pensions usually continue getting lowered
1: yeah no it's uh that's definitely a part of the overall assault on uh working class people working class families um mm-hmm. uh my gosh how great would it be if we we had pensions like you and i here like i yeah. mean man that would like i think that would eliminate <laughs> so much stress from people's lives um so just when, uh, people, I, when legislators put that on the table as a cut it's like i i don't know it's just so confusing
0: i agree i mean that's that's one of the things that is like one of the background stressors in a lot of young people's lives now is just like, yeah. or at least for for my for me and my friends, it's very much been like the the background voice is like, don't worry, you won't have a pe- or you should worry, you won't have a pension when you get older. And I feel like if that voice was eliminated, oof, the, the amount of like stress on people's shoulders that would immediately evaporate would yeah. be
1: tremendous. 100% agree. Uh, so, all right. So if I'm hearing you correctly, we talked about here, we talked about pensions, there was an attempt to cut it that ended up not going through. It just froze it. Then, uh, cuts to education was the other thing. Yeah. And that, that, the negotiations go there. Was anything taken back?
0: Not, not really. The only thing that was taken back in the negotiations of the PC, 1,003 is the pension cuts. Every other cut is still slated to go into effect. So the thing about PC 1003 is that it was enacted so that the Financial Oversight and Management Board, la Junta, could pass its debt restructuring plan. And while I believe, while I believe legally speaking, they don't have to adhere by law 53, they've kind of of like framed it as throwing us a bone. And they're now formulating a, a new debt restructuring plan that takes law 53 into account in some way, I, I believe that the text of that new debt restructuring plan has still not been published. But we'll probably get it in a few in a few days now.
1: Is this the first? Is this the first debt restructuring plan? Or is this one of many?
0: Um, the junta was it was established in 2016. And I believe the first debt restructuring plan was uh, 2019. And then this would be a second with a few like mini restructures uh in between
1: both and the purpose for a new new restructuring debt restructuring plan was do we do we know like what was the purpose i mean so thing?
0: this is this is the thing that it's like you they enact a new debt restructuring plan to like establish a method for puerto rico to pay its debt but that's like that's just not what's going to happen. So a lot of economists have said that Puerto Rico, it looks like Puerto Rico is going to default on its debt again in 2036. Yeah. But when Puerto Rico initially def- defaulted on its debt is what got the, the junta in place and promesa in place. Mm-hmm. But the I imagine the plan of la junta is to say, oh, we're doing something to restructure the island's debt uh so that they can like kind of get the shareholders off their back because um before this debt restructuring plan is set to take place we were paying uh about 270 something and after this plan is set to take place we'll be paying 300 plus so we're paying we're paying more than we were before but we still have the same amount of debt jeez Which is in my, in the one accounting class I took in college, it doesn't really sound like it makes any sense at all. Yeah.
1: Honestly, I don't think you have to ever go to a math class to realize (laughs) that don't make no damn sense. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's ridiculous. So you're paying more, but not really. So basically it's like trying to get out of quicksand. Oh, sorry. No, please go ahead. One protester I talked to
0: was was telling me about how he he once went bankrupt. And, and this is an argument that I've seen a lot of people use. Mm -hmm. When he went back bankrupt, there were certain things that he had to make sure that he paid. So like his car, his electric, his water, his house, right? And how, if you take that if you take that, like kind of framework to the Puerto Rican government and the junta, they've decided to not pay electric, Uh, not pay for education, but instead to pay the shareholders. So instead of paying public benefits to benefit the people of Puerto Rico, they've been paying or they've been paying and will continue to pay the shareholders that own Puerto Rico's debt.
1: Yeah. They're taking the student loans approach. You can file for bankruptcy, but you can't get rid of your student loans by filing for bankruptcy, which is like criminal in my mind. Um, but that's yeah, another, I, for I another strongly day. agree. <laughs> yeah, definitely another topic <laughs> for another day though. But, um, so, okay. So I just, while I'm following. So second it's the second new debt restructuring plan. Uh, is there a, con- so, and we've talked about the connection between La Junta, the board, the oversight board, um, and this, uh, policy, um, has the, has the connection been made to like, pol- like, are the politicians that introduced this like tight with La Junta Are they La Junta supporters, like just trying to think of the 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 connection there. Like, is it uh, is that making sense? Like, I don't want to sound conspiratorial. I don't I, if that's the way that it's coming out. I mean, from more from yeah, the no, perspective but- of like, what's the pre- what's the pre- level of pressure look like? Is it just legislators like, hey, this is kind of a lingering over us. Let's handle it. Or is it like we're squeezing you to do something about it at all by all means necessary?
0: Well, uh, I I don't want to sound conspiratorial either, but. It's no, it's no secret that Governor Perlisi has been has been going to bat for La Junta previously, and I believe that he previously worked as one of their lawyers before he became governor. But the the New Progressive Party is kind of like a, a little bit tight with La Junta. The Popular Democratic Party less so, but still, still kind of close and. The thing is like they kind of pretty much always do La Junta's bidding, uh, La Junta's bidding. But there is also that like uh oversight pressure of La Junta like pretty much always coming down on all of the Puerto Rican government. Mm-hmm. So like while while I don't wanna I don't wanna just blame the the politicians, no matter how much I dislike them uh, there is this, this kind of like external pressure always on them.
1: Well, yeah, no, I, I was seeing a little bit of that on, I think the, they issued a letter when there was a, when they were Puerto Rico was seeing like the height of a lot of those protests, when the bill was still being deliberated on before it was voted on. Like I thought there was a letter the board sent, uh, the house or, or the Puerto Rico's Congress saying, Hey, if you don't pass this, you don't want you know you mm-hmm. don't want to know what's gonna happen after that kind of like the almost like a mob letter kind of you know <laughs>
0: yeah kind of like that it was yeah. um Thursday the 21st
1: okay uh
0: because the they had been the Senate had been delivering on the the contents of PC 1000 and free for a while and each time it came up to vote it didn't have enough votes uh so the junta was like hey, If you don't pass it, you'll really see the side effects and after effects of Puerto Rico's bankruptcy. Uh, They sent that on the twenty-first at night, with the deadline of them having to pass it Friday at two p.m. But they they let the deadline lapse, and instead, uh, PPD and or PPD and uh, PNP politicians came to an agreement, seemingly came to an agreement on Sunday night uh but they had uh they came to an agreement on sunday night about the contents of pc 1000 and free but on thursday the 21st they had went into recess until tuesday so they passed it on tuesday Mm
1: -hmm. so but it is oh yeah no please
0: no on on monday the day before it was passed they there was a hearing with the Uh, Court District Judge Laura Taylor Swain, who's the the judge that oversees Puerto Rico's debt process and debt restructuring and all that. And she she was basically saying like, oh, my patience is wearing thin about dealing with Puerto Rico's debt, which, you know, is not great. When you're like dealing with the lives of 3.3 something million people, you're just like, ah, I'm tired of doing this. And I'm
1: uh, it's not it's not not a great sentiment. So, what exactly were those cuts to education? Was that closing down University of Puerto Rico campuses? Was that um, shutting down elementary schools? Like, what are we talking about when we say cuts to education?
0: So, I'm most familiar with the the public university cuts. So, yeah. if you don't mind me it's like just going off of that. Yeah. So, for the University of Puerto Rico, which is the only public university on the island, the the wording in PC 1003 and the debt restructuring plan would assign uh, 500 million for the entire University of Puerto Rico system for the next five years. But it seems, and yeah, Go
1: ahead, sorry. yeah,
0: it's it seems pretty low, right, especially yeah. for a university that has 11 campuses across the whole island. And that's naturally what students have been like, hey, 500 million isn't even close to enough, like we were already doing badly. Mm-hmm. 500 million. Is not at all enough for us to keep operating at the level we've been instead, we'll be forced to shrink. And this has been one of the main uh preoccupations that students have brought up, is that if this plan goes through, which is did and it continues the way it's supposed to go, they will likely be forced to close campuses across the island. The one of the main campuses that people have been talking about being possibly the first to close is the uh uh, Utuado Campus, which is the campus with the only or the only public university campus with an agriculture program.
1: Oh my God! So if
0: a student wanted to study agriculture, they'd be relegated to private universities only. And actually, in the middle of deliberations for PC even positive and free, it was it was announced that the oh, university yeah. Ana Jiménez got a two two hundred seventy five thousand dollar grant to create an agriculture program and like no no one's really sure of the funding of where that funding came from but it's like very suspicious that you're planning to close or possibly closing one campus and then like giving it to a private campus yeah (laughs) it's it's part of the whole privatization problem problem that you take away resources from something that that doesn't like doesn't uh, affect people mon- like that much mon- mon- monetarily. Yeah. uh monetarily. And then you give it to people who would charge an arm and a
1: leg for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the amount of debt that people will have to decide to either take on or not for their education in a field that they enjoy or have a passion for, um, you just completely cut that off. Or, yeah, you're basically signing away people to a life of just paying off debt. Um, on an Island where the median salary yeah. is like 20, 20 to 30 K. So it's like, that's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, uh, the other thing you mentioned was public, just kind of, just to kind of keep it moving here. Um, cause this all is horrible, just strap <laughs> in everybody. Um, it's public service. No. It's not great. It's just going to get worse from here. everybody. So buckle up. Um, you mentioned, uh, cuts to public service as well. Now, last time we had you on. We talked about Luma Energy taking over uh, Puerto Rico's electrical grid. Um, People listening, after you are done listening to this, go listen to that. Um, But uh, public services, what other public services were on the table? Because last time I think you were on, you were talking about maybe water was something that they were thinking of trying to privatize? Yeah, when
0: the the day that Luma took over the grid, Mm -hmm. took over the transmission of the grid, they were talking about possibly privatizing water um, but one of the and well, I mean the the process to privatize the production of electricity is supposed to start the, the process to do it, not the privatization of it is supposed to start at the end of this year, beginning of 2022. but um, as they were deliberating on the bill, uh, several mayors throughout the throughout Puerto Rico, Came to talk to politicians and be like, "Hey, if you pass this bill, like w- we won't have enough money to like operate municipal governments the way that we've been doing it, or and or and we might have to close altogether." I I believe um, uh, thirty or more something like a lot of a lot of mayors were like, "Hey, you can't pass this because we'll." basically be left with almost no funding to run a whole municipality mm. and actually just a couple hours before we started recording um Pierluisi signed a bill that provides 5.4 million or that continues uh, uh 5.4 million government grants to puerto rico municipalities mm. so it's like we're we're going to cut your funding but then we'll give you like Less funding in the form of a grant instead of just like, right,
1: of continuing well, the funding that they need, and the benefit being there, it's a grant, so it comes with a time limit. It's more finite, yeah, uh, as opposed to being locked into an annual um, budget. It's just like, oh, what what do we have to give around this time? So it frees them up to lower it potentially even further if they wanted mm-hmm. to theoretically. Um, Okay, so you talked a little bit about this too. There's lots of protests against PC 1003. Um, I'd like to kind of get your sense of what you feel the next chapter in this story is. Um, are we just going to keep seeing more and more protests? Um, are we going to see legislation trying to repeal that bill? Like, what are what what's kind of the next chapter here?
0: So pretty much both um, to to or yesterday. Uh, Maria Lu- Maria de Lourdes from the Puerto Rico Independence Party introduced legislation to repeal Law 53 uh, and that was just yesterday so I'm sure it's going to go through the, the whole process mm-hmm. and we'll see how that turns out but uh, I don't know personally I I don't see it turning out like being able to repeal the law but whole body cross that it's, it's able to and then we have the confirmation process for the debt restructuring plan, uh, which is set to begin the on November 8th. And then in response, people have called a protest on November 8th at 8 a.m. Uh, at the federal courthouse where that uh, confirmation process is set to take place. And there was actually a protest today at the same place where people placed like makeshift coffins in That's front fine. of the gates of the building.
1: Yeah, I saw that. That was a that was a pretty powerful statement, I, and I'm, and I mean, this this is why I love the creativity of protesters because mm-hmm. it's Dia de los Muertos. Like they brought out the coffins, they had the different things that would be cut or damaged by this being confirmed. I was like, man, it's it's like it's so inventive. It's just I I just hope the right people are seeing that because um, it as for this bill to get this far, it's just like. Mm-hmm. What, what are what are our elected What are, are the elected officials of Puerto Rico really doing? Um, so it's nice. So it, it that's where my mind goes initially. So it's nice to hear that there are politicians in the legislature that are actually introducing bills to kind of fix or rectify a lot of the damage that could potentially be called caused by PC one thousand three or will be caused by PC one
0: thousand
1: three. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, just to to be
0: fair. Um, it it almost didn't pass like they were the the vote for it was for 1413 uh, in the Senate and 1411 okay. in the House of Representatives. So there was That's they were at, I mean, they were at an impasse for a, for quite a bit. But then uh, sadly, it did pass. But there are there are several senators and representatives actively working against uh, bills or uh, against this bill and other bills like it. And even some. I've seen Maria de Lourdes and other uh, Independence Party and uh, Citizens Victory politicians uh, walking and speaking to protesters as well at the Capitol and at other protests.
1: Yeah, okay, that's so good to know because again, like, like, man, how does something like this get, like, what is the majority like? Oh my gosh, how how did they get in the office? And then, uh, so it's nice to know that, I mean, (laughs) To the extent that it could be nice, uh, maybe things are trending in a better direction, where there's getting more and more politicians that are thinking about people first, as, instead of this like vulture capitalist profit that's hanging over the island's head.
0: Um, I know the the good thing about this, or not the good thing, the air quotes good thing about this mm-hmm. is that it's not like a one and done. We're through with the process. This is like a very very long process of confirmation for this debt restructuring plan. So it it'll start on the eighth of November, but it could take up to a year, possibly even more, to finally, finally like be set in stone. And even then, um, part of the the branding by Pieraluisi and his his party was that th- this is the bill that finally gets La Junta out of Puerto Rico. But the the truth is that this is like a, an immense kind of like Baroque plan that affects 3.3 plus million people. So the junta will have to continue to be on the island dealing with like every little thing that pops up. So it's not really a plan to, to like get it away from the island. Yeah. In fact, it'll like, it assures that they'll be here for the whole like process of instituting, administrating, Mm. and making sure that it it, like goes into place.
1: Oh, that sounds terrifying.
0: Yeah. It's not, right. it's bad, bad, not good. That's what I say when I don't have like the, yeah. the, the mental energy to, oh. to deal with everything.
1: So what do people that are against this debt restructuring plan, what is the solution that they are proposing? Cause the thing I hear a lot is just cancel the debt. That's, that's what I hear as the big solution. Um, do I have that right? Or are there other solutions that are debated? Well, uh, that's, I feel like that's
0: the more most, uh, that that is a very common, common solution. But it is also like the most like pol- politically extreme, sort of. Mm. Um, there are others that argue that this, the debt could be uh, talk down that that we could fix things in law 53. One of the big things is that the, the debt hasn't been audited. So like there's things that you could, you could lower it by a substantial amount if it were audited, but it hasn't been. Yeah. Um. But I mean, they could, mm. the, the U S government could cancel the debt. It's I, I, I just, I think they could do it. I feel like it's pretty easy, but yeah. they, they won't because, you know, they, they want to pay the shareholders to yeah. make them more rich.
1: All right. So we have, so between a rock and a hard place, literally, um, not, uh, there's not enough. There's not enough political courage to cancel the debt. And the only will that there seems to be is trying to just kind of cut and cut and cut. Um, and, uh, I just don't know where that ends that just sounds I mean yeah I mean the
0: the one thing that I feel like is for sure that will continue is the the student strikes Mm -hmm. especially since since two campuses at least have called for an indefinite strike Mm -hmm. I think we're likely to see that continue whether it escalates to something bigger we'll see but yeah yeah
1: Hmm. All right. Well, the story continues, as they say. We'll see uh, how the story pans out. I appreciate you coming on the show, Carlos, because like I said at the top and before we recorded, I've been so checked out lately these past few days. So I'm like speeding up on Puerto Rico news. And uh, I've been very curious about this. So I appreciate you filling in the blanks for me. Okay. so let people know. I mean, you shared it last time you're on the show, but give it to us again. How can people keep up with you? Uh, after they're done listening to this episode.
0: Uh, so you can find most of my uh, kind of like journalism and journalist E things on my Twitter uh, at Vaquero2xl, which is B-A-Q-U-E-R-O-2-X-L. And that's pretty much where I post everything I do. And then I'm also like a regular contributor to uh, Latino Rebels
1: Definitely a Twitter feed worth following. I will say that for sure. Um, okay. Carlos Perios Polanco. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, once again, people that are listening, uh, Carlos is a freelance journalist, uh, freelance independent journalist, I should say, uh, focused on covering extremism, political corruption, and civil unrest in Puerto Rico. Thanks for coming on, man. As I mentioned in my interview with Carlos, I have been playing catch up with the Puerto Rico news cycle, so I don't have my normal rundown of news to share with you all today. But I will share this last call to action before I sign off in regards to PC 1003. Next week, the economic future of Puerto Rico will be decided by Judge Laura Taylor Swain. On October 8th, 2021, Judge Swain will hold a confirmation hearing on the debt repayment plan that will saddle Puerto Rico. With more austerity for decades to come. If approved, the debt plan would cut services, jeopardize the future of the University of Puerto Rico, cut pensions, and potentially lead Puerto Rico into another bankruptcy in less than 10 years. The people of Puerto Rico have voted against this plan, but the Fiscal Control Board and billionaire bondholders are doing everything in their power to make sure this plan gets approved. However, the judge can still reject the plan and support another process that provides a just recovery for Laila. You can act now and let your voice be heard by filling out the petition in our show notes and sharing it with your friends and family to do the same. Okay, that's our show for today, familia. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did or didn't, let us know, paseopodcast at gmail.com or at Baseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show by following us at Baseo Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Don't forget that uh, you can support the show by subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing and leaving a five-star rating or whatever the highest rating is on the streaming platform you're using really helps more people find the show. And showing some love in the comments helps too. I know I really like reading them. On our next episode, we welcome Yari Vargas. Uh, She is the owner of the restaurant Casa Yari, which is a big favorite amongst many guests we've had on the show. Really, in general, it's a big favorite amongst Puerto Ricans in Chicago. She is one of the few Puerto Rican spots to eat at that uh, offers health-conscious takes on popular Puerto Rican cuisine, all with locally sourced ingredients, too. Last time I was there, I had vegan bacalaitos, and I don't think I'll ever go back. Beyond food, you know, of course, that's going to be a big discussion, um, but we are going to talk about her business. Um, Of course, like I said, we're going to talk about food and specifically how that food connects us to our ancestors. And uh, she's also going to give us some tips for how we can better prepare healthier versions of popular, uh, maybe not so popular, Puerto Rican dishes heading into the holiday season. Until then, as always... If you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview or share a new story you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, paseomedia.org, to do just that. See you in two weeks. Cuídate.